You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Love can sure spin your head around. God, where do you begin? Well, hello. We must have been meant to be together. It's too bad you have to work tonight. Only till midnight. Fate is a funny thing. Take a nap, because you're going to need all your energy tonight. It was one of those strange nights. Finally meet the right girl and you blow it. That could ruin your whole day. In a big way. Dad, it's happening. This is it. This is really it. This is the big one. This is a joke, right? It's really happening. 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 This can't be true. We'll all be dead if we don't get out of here. Nobody believes this, do they? Not me, not Spongy. Make a list for me. People who we want to bring along. We gotta get Julie. Who's Julie? Harry Belafonte. Who are you? Who are you? Stop and let me off. I don't stop for nothing. Jump! Don't hurt me, man. I got Nakamichi Pioneer. I got everything. If it doesn't happen, I'll pay you. What doesn't happen, man? I'm dreaming. That's, that's it, I'm dreaming. Y'all ready to go? You the pilot? Hey! Hey, you know anybody can fly helicopter? Helicopter pilots. All the helicopter pilot bars are closed. What's the problem? It's true. Love can be exciting. Trust me with this. Even terrifying. Julie! I love you! But nothing could prepare you for an experience like this. What is the truth here? Miracle Mile. Listen, I'm just a guy who who picked up the phone. Welcome to the end of the world. I'm your host, Mike White. Back from the wilds of Aquilonia is Mr. Rob St. Maria. Well, I'm just a guy who picked up the phone. Also with us this week is author David J. Moore. Hey guys, how's it going? This week we are talking about the 1988 film Miracle Mile, written and directed by Steve DeJarnett. The film had quite a life even before the first frame was shot. It tells the story of Harry Washello, a trombone player who meets and falls in love with a girl, Julie Peters, on the eve of nuclear Armageddon. We're going to be getting into some spoilers here, so either go check out a copy now or wait a few months until this thing comes out on Blu-ray. We'll be hearing more about the details of the upcoming Blu-ray release when we hear from Mr. DeJarnett later on in the episode. Until then, David, when was the first time you saw Miracle Mile and what did you think? I think the first time I saw that movie was on VHS years after it had come out. I think it was at a video store that was closing down. I picked it up just because, I don't know, it, it looked cool. I, I think I'd read about it in either Leonard Malton's book or one of those things. And uh, I remember watching it. And I've always been a fan of movies like Into the Night and After Hours, where the whole movie takes place during one night. And Miracle Mile is definitely like that. So I I really liked that. For whatever reason, that appealed to me. Um, And then years later, when I had a special interest in post-apocalyptic movies and end-of-the-world stuff, 
I had to watch it several more times, and I, I love it. Um, I actually love both of DeJarnat's movies. Uh, I think the last time I saw it was in a theater out at the uh, at the Egyptian in Hollywood when they did a double bill of those movies. And I, I just I love it, and I'm really glad that um, it's finally getting a Blu-ray release. It's finally, finally, finally here that it's widescreen. I had not seen this film until you told me that we were going to do it for the show, and uh, I feel bad that I missed out. But at the same time, after watching it, I was like. Wow, this is the guy who co-wrote uh, Strange Brew. So that was uh, it's it's kind of interesting to go from Strange Brew to this. Well, actually, yeah, he went from this to Strange Brew. This had been kicking around Hollywood for years and years, and we're definitely going to be hearing more about that later in the interview. But I remember hearing about this movie. Uh, probably after it came out, I think I saw it on VHS early nineties and totally blew me away. I love movies with bleak endings and this one really fits that bill. I also like, um, apocalyptic kind of on the eve of the apocalypse last night on earth kind of movies and this one definitely is there and i have to say solid solid cast just seeing all of these actors in one film is pretty amazing being led by anthony edwards who always kind of seems to get short shrift you know the goose never gets the love that the Iceman and uh, maverick get so i uh, was very glad to see him in the lead here as harry washello the kind of bon vivant uh, trombone player and he falls in love with mayor winningham who i have to say sports probably one of the most unfortunate hairdos uh, maybe in cinematic history Am I exaggerating on, on that You're one? You're exaggerating a little bit. I mean, the hairdo's not that bad. I just I like that she's in every woman, you know, and he's just in every guy. They're not they're not, you know, Demi Moore and, and Tom Cruise or whatever. You know, they're just they're like your friends. I will grant you that. She's definitely very down to earth, but just even the last time I was watching the movie, I was just like, God, that's it's just distracting now. Maybe at the time it wouldn't have been, but it just it really was getting to me, especially this last time around. I've probably seen this movie about ten or twelve times now, and that one thing just gets worse each time. Wow. Yeah, I I think that's a bit rough. I mean, when you compare this against Something that uh, came to my mind a little bit uh, because it's so 80s, you know, liquid sky. I mean, come on, go easy on the hair here. It is very nice that they have this relationship. It's really nice that we have this kind of counterpointed with her mom and dad who have been separated for all these years. And they definitely seem like they're kind of fated to be together. They meet out by the La Brea tar pits and he's kind of being a, a little bit of a cut up and everything and, you know, trying to woo her. And I like that their whole relationship gets kind of set up during the opening credits. And it's nice that they have this um, sweet, it's innocent, it's nice, but it also does feel adult. It does feel like these are two fully fleshed out characters, even though we don't get a ton of their backstory. Right. No, I, I would agree with that. Definitely. And then we go from that to the trombone exhibition and we have a little bit of some crossed wires going on here literal crossed wires i guess where harry's supposed to meet up with her after this and he goes back to his hotel takes a little bit of a nap and the power goes out at the hotel so he doesn't end up waking up until much later in the evening where he was supposed to meet up with her with at uh, what is it johnny the fat boy restaurant kind of a nice nod to uh fat man and little 
boy, the, the nuclear bombs, but goes in there and we're just met with a host of character actors that we know and love from so many other things, like Robert Doqui as the cook, and Olan Jones, who we'll hear from later on as the waitress, Denise Crosby show up as Landa, probably one of my favorite characters in the film, because she is just so cold and so knowing about so many things, and she's rocking an, an amazing phone. Well, dude, you forgot Claude Earl Jones, who's also in uh, Cherry 2000. Uh, he's in there, too. He's, he's there in the diner. I think he's the guy that drives the, uh, the street cleaner truck. He shows up a little later in, in the movie. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but the, the ultimate character actor cast. I love it. So we have this kind of misconnection, and what we end up, rather than the misconnection between uh, Harry and Julie, is him making a connection with a guy on the phone who calls from one of the missile silos. Perhaps he works right next to Michael Madsen at the missile silo from um, War Games or something, and he ends up telling Harry... Jesus, look, I had to wake you in. It's... It's happening. I can't believe it, but we're locked into it. 50 minutes and counting. Christ, dude, this can't take it. I can't fucking take it. I'm sorry, Dad. I shouldn't swear. I'm sorry, but this is it. This is really it. This is the big one. Thor Arthur 66 AZD. You know, like I told you what would happen if it ever came down? Well, it is. We don't know why. I mean, why would we, huh? It's for real, Dad. There's no drill. We shoot our wad in 50 minutes. They're going to pick us up in five or ten, and you could get it back in an hour and ten. What exactly are you talking about? I'm talking about nuclear fucking war. Who is this? Oh, where's my dad? Go get my dad. Your dad? There's nobody here. Where's he supposed to be? How the hell would I know? You're in Orange County. I'm in North Dakota. Hey, is this some kind of prank or something? So we've got a ticking clock in the film. Uh, I kind of like that we don't follow the clock 100%. I mean, I don't think that this movie is set out the rest of the time in real time, because it seems to take a little bit more than 70 minutes for all this stuff to kind of happen, or however long they set up the the clock for, but I'm fine with that. I think it's really nice that there's kind of this doubt that it could be real, though you want it to be real. You don't want Harry to be crazy, and you do want him to get the girl. But at the same time, you kind of don't want the world to end. So it, it's this kind of weird mix going on here. Oh, gosh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I never wanted the, the world to end in the movie. I mean, you want the guy to succeed. I mean, he started off the day so well, and to end you know, the way it does, um, yeah, it's pretty pretty bleak. And you're right, it does really remind me a lot of After Hours and these kind of one-night films, usually which are comedies. And there is a lot of comedy in this movie, which could, a lot of times it's super serious, too. And I like that there's this kind of bouncing back and forth between the two tones of comedy and seriousness. And you have a lot of actors that are able to play both, like uh, Michael T. Williamson, who shows up as this guy who's boosted some stereos, but he's got a ride. And that's really what, you know, Harry's looking for to get across town so he can, you know, meet back up with Julie. And Michael T., he is fantastic when it comes to being able to play both comedy and drama wonderful in this you know most people know him as bubba from uh forrest gump where also plays comedy and drama really well together i think he's a really underrated actor and i I wish i could see more of him I, i wish he was showing up in more roles but it's always nice to see when he pops up and stuff you forgot about brian thompson too he's in there 
as the uh, the against type muscle guy who conveniently is uh, the only helicopter pilot in you know like a hundred mile radius. But uh, yeah, he was great too. Yeah, which comes a little later on in the day as we uh, kind of go to the what is it like the Century Life Building? I feel very out of it when I watch this movie because it's so based. In L.A., like, I didn't even really realize why they were calling it Miracle Mile, because Miracle Mile, to me, is like a stretch of Michigan Avenue in Chicago. I had no idea that there was a Miracle Mile in Los Angeles for a long time, so I felt kind of out of sorts watching this movie. Yeah, I I drive by there all the time. I mean, that's the L.A. County Museum of Art. There's like a big sign that says Miracle Mile as you're driving down the road. And, uh, you know, I can always picture him running, running and running and running right around that area. And it's, it's great. So is that like the big shopping center or like what, why is it the Miracle Mile? Um, there's a story about that, actually. I don't, I don't really know what it is uh, offhand, but I've heard it before. I think actually Steve DeJarnet told me that when I interviewed him because I, I talked to him a couple of years ago about this movie. And I think he was the one who told me what all that was about. It had something to do with, uh, yes, a shopping center. Um, but that's, I don't think that's there anymore. But it, it runs for miles and miles and miles, uh, as far as I know. So it should actually be called the Miracle Miles? Miracle Miles. <laughs> okay. That doesn't sound quite as nice as just the one. Right, right. Well, now it's, it's, I think it's been broken up, and over time you've got that, just the piece. As I was saying, there's kind of this bouncing back and forth between the comedy and the drama and everything. I mean, one of the first big showcases that we get in the film is with Michael T. Williamson and Eddie Bunker, uh, where Michael T. needs some more gas in order to make it across town. And they stop at this uh, cab stand gas station where really nobody is supposed to be able to get gas except for these cabs. And Eddie Bunker is there. He comes out and he's negotiating with them. And these two cops show up. And so, and then things quickly turn from kind of this lighthearted thing, even though the clock is ticking to nuclear Armageddon, into this horrific scene of these two cops immolating and the whole gas station going up. It's just like, holy shit, I really didn't expect that. Yeah, well, this movie gets it goes from bad to worse very quickly. Um, but I, it needs that. You need to feel that tension. You need to feel the uh, the urgency of the situation i mean but like you said it is kind of farce i mean you can kind of laugh at some of that stuff because it just gets crazier and crazier i mean is is after hours a comedy it kind of is but it's also just completely insane it's just crazy he's so desperate to see julie again this woman that he really doesn't know that well but he really kind of feels fated to be with and ultimately is fated to be with and then these characters that kind of come in and out of the story i mean when you see certain ones come back that you don't necessarily think are going to be there and then the introduction of new characters you mentioned the the brian thompson character was great to see him and just kind of show up as this um, uh, helicopter pilot and then of course kurt fuller who's on the roof of this building Oh my God, Kurt Fuller is just, he is always a treat whenever he shows up. Usually just plays a complete slime ball. I wouldn't say that this is against type, but he is um, a little bit different of a slime ball in this role. Yes. We met him twice, right, in the movie uh, earlier on. Who was he? Was he in the diner? I can't remember. I think he just shows up on top of the building, but I think we get him twice on the building because they go up there. At least twice, yeah. Well, one of the things I liked in here was the fact that it's kind of a confusion in that 
I don't necessarily feel in the early part of the film that we believe it until it kind of shows up. There's sort of, I think, this ambiguity that it's kind of going back and forth. It's not really 100% spelled out. It's not like there's some insert shot of the missile coming, you know, in the middle of the thing. So I, I really liked how that played out. And I thought that that helped to add to the tension and sort of this, is, is this guy just out of his mind and he's got everyone else agreeing with him? Or is there really something more to it? I think it's great that this is one of the first times that you're seeing the movie. I think uh, both David and I have seen it quite a few times, so we know how that end is going to play out and that there is no doubt in our minds. But seeing it as a first-time viewer, I think it's great that you had that doubt. I probably had that the first time that I saw it, but it's been so long that I can't really remember how that experience went. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think it becomes obvious until they're out in front of that store and then they break the window to hear the TV report and you see every, like, the TV anchors are in chaos. Like, it's sort of a scene out of Dawn of the Dead or something in the beginning. So, it's, um, you know, because for a while, I'm kind of questioning. I'm just like, well, maybe this is all bullshit. Maybe some guy called and he picked it up and now he's all you know frenzied and then in the end it'll be nothing and he'll end up going to jail or something you know it'll kind of turn back on him but once it gets going it's it, it's quite good and i like sort of how it's it's plotted and played out that way i mean for a small film it looks great i mean the the effects even for the time look really well that scene of all the chaos on the street and the cars flipping over and crashing and everything i mean i was watching it, i go man they threw some money behind this thing and then when we got to the ending and we'll talk about that in a little while i was like completely blown away by that ending because i'm like this is 1988 and it feels like this is a film that would have been made in like 78 no there definitely is that darkness to this movie that you don't necessarily expect especially you know we think about the 80s as being a little bit more light when it comes to some of the content of yeah. the films and everything we always go back to the 70s as being more serious even when it comes to you know even the 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 comedies were harder hitting everything seemed to uh not have that kind of sheen on it well i mean we talked about that before you know with with reagan selection and the sort of the mythology of the 80s it was like hey prosperity's back and you know the horribleness of vietnam has all been erased from our minds so let's go out and achieve and spend 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 and look all shiny and i think we talked about this before but i kind of put it down from like 67 to 83 something like that is what i would consider that era of what we always talk about of these idiosyncratic films you can have you know anti-heroes and downer endings quote unquote and that was like the last great period in american film as far as i'm concerned well, I think one of the things that helps play into that is that this film was originally written in the late 70s, and it really carries that with it. If there's one thing, and I definitely want to talk about this probably in the second half of the show, I always kind of question the effectiveness of this film coming out, played in Toronto and, and Montreal in late 88, and then opened in the U.S. in 89. So I've always questioned, like, what the world politics changing so much in the 80s, what that might have done to the film, especially the whole idea of, you know, when this was written, it was, we were really under the threat of nuclear war. By the time it came out, 
not necessarily, but it still carries that gravitas to it. It still has that weight. And I guess we should probably just talk about the ending a little bit here, and then we can get into the interviews. The whole idea that we go back to the tar pits and this whole idea of basically we find out, yes, things have gone to shit. The world has gone haywire and we have gone, you know, I I love the whole idea of the, the way that the movie is progressing, that it's just Harry's craziness at first, and I put craziness in, in quotes, infects that little group at the uh, the diner, and then you know, we don't necessarily get a whole lot. Like He is the main actor as we, he goes through the night throughout the rest of this, and then at one point it's just like, holy shit, the world has gone nuts. It's like everybody is finally kind of caught up to him, and that's the moment where I'm just like, okay, yeah, this for sure is real. I don't know if it's if it's with the news anchors that I, I finally get it, or if it's when they have the uh, the the car crashing through the building towards the end. It's just like, okay, yeah, this is the real deal. When he walks out onto the street and it's just mass chaos, it's like shit just got real. But yeah, it just uh, is amazing the way that this thing just builds, builds, builds. And then, yeah, Kurt Fuller kind of really brings it home for me. I don't think anybody's mentioned Miracle uh, Tangerine Dream, the score. Um, and that, that helps a great deal. That score is essential to this movie. Uh, without the score, I don't think the mood or the, the urgency of the whole thing would work. I mean, it, it works because the score is so good. They used to do some amazing scores. I mean, they were the guys that did uh, Sorcerer, right? The Sorcerer, Thief, uh, Risky Business. They did the score for Near Dark. Legend, you name it. They did, they did most of that the stuff that uh, we, we like today. <laughs> I used to get them confused with Vangelis, and I know I'll probably get hate mail for that, but anyway. Yeah, no, not Vangelis. They're still going around, and there's been um, they're supposed to meet on the top of this building, which is, I guess, some insurance building, uh, as you referenced earlier. And they find the guy in the gym, and he's like, okay, well, I'm a helicopter pilot, and I can fly the helicopter, but i, I got to bring my, my partner. It's kind of interesting how they introduce, you know, that this guy would be a gay character. But anyway, so they, they get to this building, and then eventually, I can't remember how they get to the, is it in there? They're in a truck or there's somewhere where it appears they're drowning. I'm, I, I apologize. My memory is kind of faulty. They're definitely in a, a vehicle of some sort and managed to crash into the La Brea tar pits where the whole thing began, which I always like that kind of poetical, you know, coming back home kind of thing. And then they talk about how there was this whole idea of the dinosaurs and the uh, mammoths being trapped in the tar and everything. And just this whole thing about how when the, the bomb hits that they'll be turned into diamonds. And there's a, a really nice, the way that the dialogue is played out and the way that the performances are. I mean, I've talked about how many great actors there are, but really haven't said that they give stellar performances as well. And like I said, you know, Anthony Edwards, I've always had a real soft spot for this guy. And I just always felt like he ended up in the second banana rolls way too often. And I was really glad to see him being the, uh, the primero banana in this film. And he, carries the whole film effortlessly and he and Mayor Winningham do make a winning couple and the the things that they say to each other at the end where they're talking about the insects taking over I mean it just plays out really really nicely they'll find us here someday uh-huh. I'll put us in a museum 
Maybe we'll get a direct hit. It'll metamorphosize us. Superman, he could take a lump of coal and he'd squeeze it and it would make a diamond. saw the ending i wrote in my notes i said wow you know this has a feel of a 70s film i can't believe it was made in the 80s i go um i can understand why it didn't do as well as it should have upon its initial release because you know everything's there i mean the story's good it's got you know good effects it's it's well produced the the acting and the directions you know all that but i i saw that ending and i was like wow i'm like i didn't expect that and maybe that was part of the reason why it didn't do so well. Um, well, this this movie, uh, like you guys keep saying, um, this was the very end of the Cold War because the next year the Berlin Wall came down. So this is this is kind of a nice. Well, I don't know if that's the right the right word, nice, but this is a really solid way to end the Cold War with this movie. No, I totally agree. And yeah, let's uh, go ahead and take a break and play back a pair of interviews. The first with actress Olan Jones and the second with writer-director Steve DeJarnett. And then we can come back and talk a little bit more about how the, the Cold War and everything affected us, affected the film, and how the, the film kind of speaks to that. But first, let's go ahead and play back a couple brief messages. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts 
including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. For you, the listeners of the Projection Booth podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can download The Android's Dream by John Scalzi or another book of your choice for free by trying audible.com and it's yours to keep even if you cancel your subscription. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth for your free audiobook. Howdy, folks. Like blood, violence, freaks and nature. You come to the right place. My name is Gary, and I'm your guide to Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode, we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet. All right, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. Oh, slaps. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, Take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. So join the insanity and please venture frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. And remember, here at the Seven Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. Hi, I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecue and oxen and roasting ball for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid Commentaries. Ain't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gun while looking at a bat. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. But usually you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kickass. You can find us on our main page, which is dractionkickass.blogspot.com. You can also find us on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. Hey, where's that baby mama at? I gotta tell you somebody. How did you get involved with acting? I started out as a singer-songwriter, and I lived on the Lower East Side, and I uh, I lived across from St. Mark's Church that had a theater in it called Theater Genesis, where a lot of uh, new playwrights were doing things, and there was a director that just sort of on a hunch, asked me to be in a in an improvisational workshop kind of thing. So I did that, and people just sort of asked me to be in plays, and I was just, just doing it for fun, because <laughs> my real career at that time I thought was singer-songwriter. And then I did a play with an actor called Charles Ludlam, who was, uh, he had a, 
a theater called, he was either the Ridiculous Theater Company or Theater Ridiculous, something like that. It was, there were two different names inside out from each other. He introduced me to what it could be to create a whole world together in a theatrical situation where the rules were intuitive between the two of you. And so that's when I started noticing theater had something going for it besides just, you know, jumping around and playing. <laughs> and then I was in um, a lot of Sam Shepard's plays there and, and who I was married to for a long time. Now, when you were doing your singer-songwriter thing, that was what, late 60s kind of time? What was the scene like there? 67, 67 around there. What was the music scene like for for you? What kind of world were you in? Like my mother was a waitress at the Cafe Wall where Jimi Hendrix was playing in 65, and I went and saw him when I was 15. You know, it was all the things that make rock and roll what it is today. <laughs> and Bob Dylan was just coming out, you know, and it was all that kind of music. And people were, it was everybody was on psychedelics and writing about their insights kind of thing. How did you go from doing the stage work into doing the film work? That didn't happen for a long time. I did stage work for a really long time. And then... Um, I think it happened when I when we moved to California, San Francisco, like in the seventies, and I just started auditioning for things, like Die Laughing. <laughs> I was gonna say one of your early roles was Die Laughing. What was that movie like? It's so weird when you have a small part like that. I was just like a judge or something that. Most of your time is spent off the set because <laughs> it's. Um, you know, they don't encourage people hanging around unless you're actually in the... Even if you have a big part, they don't encourage people hanging around unless you're in the scene because there's so much stuff going on. So the n- most notable thing for me in that movie was I was sharing, you know, one of those teeny tiny trailers with another person. I, I was in the bathroom and she didn't know I was there. And she came in and started giving herself this huge pep talk in the mirror. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, she's got to go out soon. She's got to go out soon. But she was there and there and there just, you know, you know, you're the one girl. You know, you can do it. You know, just like on and on. And I, I finally couldn't just keep on standing there in the bathroom. But <laughs> I coughed or something and she freaked out. And left. You said your mom was a waitress and you've kind of become known for playing waitresses in films. Was uh, Miracle Mile your, your first know. waitress you know, I role? I look it up on IMDb or something, see what it, see what my first, because I did do a lot of waitress roles. I have done a lot of waitress roles, and um, I was in a series where I played a waitress, so it feels like I did endless, endless waitress roles. But I never actually waitressed in real life. <laughs> That's pretty remarkable. I thought that was the go-to thing for actors. You know, actors. yeah, it's, it's supposed to be. <laughs> What was uh, Miracle Mile like? Well, you know, it was fantastic because, well, it was weird because we were shooting nights and that always puts mm-hmm. you in an altered state because we we humans are made to be awake during the day. I mean, literally, we are created for that, I believe, so that you, you're awake in the day anyhow. You know, you maybe some naps, so you're awake all the time and in that kind of sleep deprivation mode where... Everything gets really sensitized, and uh, so an ensemble forms very quickly in that in that way. And 
there's something about working with a, a director that has a vision, and it's not something that they can actually say, like, this is my vision, but it's just the atmosphere that's created because they're they're on a mission, you know? So it's fun to be in that kind of atmosphere rather than somebody who's just sort of making it up like they've seen somebody else do. I guess I've never really been comfortable or spent too much time in that atmosphere. Every, every art form and art situation I've been in, I'd say 90% of them is people looking for new territory. So when you're on somebody else's ride like that, it's it's great because you're just following a lot of intuition and feeling your way. That film has such an amazing cast. Uh, who are some of the people that you enjoyed working with on that? Well, all of them. I mean, Tony Edwards was great. I worked with him in another movie after that, too, a, a very important film called How I Got Into College. <laughs> Um, and Mare Winningham, I liked her very much. I don't think we ever did anything together on on screen, but we did spend some time off screen. I mean, everyone, I don't remember everybody's name, but everybody was kind of amazing. I really liked How I, how I Got Into College. That was a great one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, it, that was also fun, you know. I mean, the thing I remember most about that one is in the movie, there's a baby elephant. And we're all supposed to be looking at the elephant in joy and amazement. And they had the elephant there for the elephant's screen time. But then when we were supposed to be looking in joy and amazement, there was just this guy kind of moving a stand back and forth. <laughs> so we were really acting up a storm. <laughs> I was curious, how did Shelf Life kind of come about? Well, <clears throat> and you've seen Shelf Life? Yes. I managed <laughs> to track down a cop. Actually, I've tracked one down years and years ago on VHS and then um, wow. recently found a slightly better version of it, but it's still pretty rough around the edges. Yeah, you know, I, it, I, it's so disappointing to me that that uh, was so mismanaged by the producer that took over. I mean, he just, I mean, he literally lost film and he just really, really didn't could it, you know, it could have been like a, some weird cult thing where people sing along with us kind of thing. <laughs> but it was um, created because Jim and Andy and I were found ourselves living in Los Angeles at the same time. We knew each other from different places, and we made up something for us ourselves to do. It started out as a play. And then Paul Bartel came and saw it on the last night, and he, he loved it, and he he gave us fabulous suggestions. It's like he walked right into the world that we'd made up. He suggested that we have, we add three scenes where two two of us gang up on the other person and, you know, make some relationships like that, and... He funded it. He got everything together for it. I mean, two weeks after he saw it, I think we were shooting it. That was big fun because I, I loved the whole concept of it. You know, afterwards, people would say, like, well, they really would have run out of food by then. It's like, yeah, it's not really a documentary. It's a metaphor. <laughs> it's a metaphor for people making up their lives with, like, just an inch and a half of information from outside media every so often. Paul, I remember him saying when he was working on it that he thought it was a good policy to every so often just devote yourself to somebody else's vision, that it opened things up in a different way. And he he really did that. And, you know, for his troubles, like he'd been a judge at Sundance. He'd been in part of that whole world and they wouldn't even let him show it. 
at Sundance because a lot of people hated it more than words could say. But he sort of started the slam dance setup because he, he, I think he rented, I didn't go there, but he went because it sounded like it would end in tears. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, he rented a theater, I think, and had a whole screening and like that. And I think it was the first of its kind to, to do that. You really got to kind of go back to your roots a little bit there by uh, writing some of the lyrics and doing the music yeah, and performing yeah. and everything. That's yeah. great. And I still do. You know, that's you had a question about overtone, and that's um, you know, there's lots of info on our website, but that's where I'm a composer now. I compose operas and and direct them and choreograph them and do all of that. I mean, they they're like epic pieces that often take seven or eight years to develop. And that's a non-profit company, so you know, we can receive grants like from the National Endowment of the Arts, and I'm still doing all of that kind of stuff with this company. What kind of uh, operas? I mean, do you have particular themes that you're working with often, or just... They're not... Well, I guess what they do have in common is... Um, they have to be funny and deep, <laughs> you know, like real life. So I, I look for how to make the mythology of sort of inner states of mind, inner stories, because I, I, I don't like the kind of thing where people are singing about, you know, I'm going to the store. I think if you're going to sing, it has to be for epic reasons, <laughs> you know. So I, I did one in... Um, a few years back that was very successful. In fact, I wasn't prepared. I didn't have all of the actors ready to keep on working and working for months. But in a, an empty car dealership in Culver City, a 25,000 square foot space, I did this thing called Songs and Dances of Imaginary Lands that it had 21 writers and 11 composers and I just send out a, a you know a, a bulletin to all the usual suspects that I like to work with to create create imaginary cultures and what and we'll make what their indigenous ceremonies and dances and things are and we got all these great ideas and instead of it just being a parade of weird stuff I I organized it in terms of the lands of childhood and adolescence and adulthood and old age and then retro-engineered a couple who had lost their identity and were trying to reclaim it by entering these lands that embodied uh, sort of turning points in their lives. So it was a simple story, but instead of the mental narrative about then in 1993 I moved from blah, 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 it would be like the whole song and dance of what it feels like to uproot yourself, you know, that kind of thing. So, and everything was on wheels, there were 21 installations, there were trains for the audience, there was the eight, eight or ten piece orchestra that everybody had their own special trolley that carried their instrument and then became a seat when they arrived at the land. You know, it was, it took everything I knew <laughs> to do it. Wow. And there were 21, 22, 22 performers, 10 musicians, musical director, extra dancers. I mean, it was, it was huge. There's actually a little bit of footage of that on, on the Overtown Industries website. Very cool. I will definitely have to link to that because yeah. that sounds just amazing. It's overtoneindustries.org, not .com. So. 
when you get recognized on the street, what do you generally hear? What are people uh, recognizing you for? Most often, they accuse me of working at Radio Shack or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, a lot of times people think, they say, oh, you come into our store all the time. It's like, no, I don't. Um, It's Edward Scissorhands and Natural Born Killers and mostly that. And sometimes... Oh, a big one is Seinfeld, the Bubble Boy um, episode. One of the best episodes ever. Yeah. (laughs) If you were to say, well, that's great that you know me from this, but you really should check out this film or this work, what what are some of the things that you would try to point people towards? Well, I don't know. I mean, I wish, I really do wish Shelf Life. I even found a distributor at one point, you know, but uh, because it had been so mismanaged, some of the music in it had not been had not been uh, licensed in the right way. So if we only had twenty five thousand dollars, kids, you know, someday maybe I'll do a fundraising something to try and just pay it off and get it out there. I wish people had seen Shelf Life. I, you know, in the film world, I, I'm proud of Esmeralda and Edward Scissorhands and things like that. In fact, actually, I just, out of the blue, uh, Tim Burton tracked me down to be in a new movie of his. Oh, excellent. I know. I signed a confidentiality agreement, so I can't tell you anything about it. It's called Miss um, Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. That was a very nice gift out of the blue, just like last week. <laughs> I think the first time a lot of people heard about Miracle Mile was in the American Film uh, Magazine article uh, talking about the best unmade scripts, but I know there was a history before that. What was kind of the genesis of the idea for Miracle Mile? Well, it's funny. That came up uh, yesterday or Friday. I actually I assembled 10, well, nine in person and one via Skype of the supporting cast. Uh, you know, pretty much everybody who's still around other than Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham at Johnny's coffee shop after 27 years. And one of the, the actors is Alan Rosenberg, who plays the young street sweeper, uh, Mike, his brother, Mark ran Warner brothers right after I'd made a short detective movie to get into the business. And I went in with the producer, Tony bill, who was very hot at the time It produced the sting and a uh, taxi driver and a few other things. And, uh, I, went and pitched the idea to Mark Rosenberg at Warner Brothers, and he he bought the idea, the concept, and uh, I, I wrote the script for them. That's how it all originated. And, uh, you know, I just basically, you know, I remember it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I just, you know, said, hey, what would you do if that phone rang? And it was a kid calling from a missile silo uh, and said, we're going to shoot off our missiles in a few, you know, 20 minutes, and the Russians will pick them up, and the rest of the movie plays in, in real time, and what moral choices and choices of the heart would you make in that time span? And that was that was the nutshell concept that I pitched. Turned in a draft. They liked it. They they loved it. They you know I, I 
was somehow on the list for directing things uh, off this short film card called Tarzana, which was a like a Raymond Chandler film noir piece. And they still wanted to do more development on it. They they weren't quite sure what. Later on, I found out that they wanted to use it for Twilight Zone, the movie. At the time, they just wanted to you know put a couple of big writers on it just to punch it up, supposedly. And even back then, that's very common today that, you know, they throw writer after writer on it. It gets very expensive to ever get your project back. So I asked for it back and they graciously let me have it free for a year, I think. And then I had to option it a couple of times. And then, yeah, as you know, the Strange Brew (laughs) incident, I took every penny I made on Strange Brew and gave it back to Warner Brothers to to buy it outright. Uh, And then I owned it. Then Mark Rosenberg, the same guy, offered me a fortune to sell it back to not direct. And I considered that, but do not regret that I didn't take the money. How would this have played into the Twilight Zone movie? Would this have been the one that came out or a different version? You know, before the four-part thing, I guess they were looking for something that would would be a standalone Twilight Zone. And the, I did, I wasn't really aware of that till later. It's actually mentioned in the the book about the tragedy. And it kind of made me feel really weird because um, they said, gee, if we would have made Steve DeJarnett's Miracle Miles to Twilight Zone, you know, this wouldn't have happened, perhaps. Uh, but I think they wanted it all to happen. But then he woke up at the end and then it started all happening again. I don't think a Twilight Zone fan would be satisfied with that. And I wasn't really satisfied with not, you know, with doing that <laughs> ending either. And I was very arrogant at the time. So. I don't know. They let, you know, it was amicable. I, we didn't, you know, they, they let me have it back. I don't know. It doesn't happen a lot today. There was a five year gap between adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie, strange brew and miracle mile. What was kind of going on in the interim there? Oh, let's see. You know, after, uh, I mean, I wrote miracle mile just before 1980, like in, in, I pitched it in 1979 earlier in the year. And I turned it in, I think just before the end of the year, off this short film, I, I got offered a lot of movies to direct, and some of them, you know, I, I actually worked on. I was going to do a Hell's Angels biker movie that I discovered Mickey Rourke for, who had done almost nothing, and it came close. We were casting and building sets, and it fell apart, and then I later worked with him on his boxing movie, because he, he remembered I'd gone to bat for him to champion him he was really unknown at the time and then later after diner and body heat and hope of greenwich village some things he was you know the the cat's pajamas as they say the hottest guy in town i think the movie eventually got made it was called homeboy but i used to work with him on that db cooper story i I was going to direct that for a while you know get attached to a lot of different things turn down the the first Pee Wee herman movie after strange brew uh, I don't know whatever happened to the guy who ended up doing it, Tim something. I'm sh- I don't know whatever happened to him. but That sounds familiar. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I don't regret that choice either. And I give Tim Burton all the credit for making it a wonderful movie. I wouldn't have been the right guy. And then you did eventually end up directing Cherry 2000 in the intro. I uh, did. And the only thing I'd done before that, I, I really made a career out of not doing anything <laughs> except trying to make Miracle Mile. But just before Cherry, I finally, my first professional job uh, was doing a four-part, you know, kind of like The Twilight Zone, but it was the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but it was for television, a four-part TV movie uh, where they remade four of the old Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. And I was very fortunate to get the 
best story, Man from the South, and the best cast. The original was Steve McQueen, Peter Lorre. My cast was John Huston, Kim Novak, Tippi Hedren, Melanie Griffith, and Steve Bauer. First time in a professional set, I think I was the only novice. I was the student filmmaker, and three other veteran TV directors had gone over budget. It was like a five-day shoot, shooting in Vegas in a high roller suite. And, you know, at the beginning of the week, I I think I almost got fired because I was still rewriting stuff and tinkering with it. They said, no, it's locked. Uh, but we got the Caesars Palace, you know, huge two-story suite. I said, well, I got to rewrite it for the entrances. And they said, don't write another word or you'll be fired. After they didn't do that, uh, by the end of the week, I was the only director who came in on schedule. It turned into a no, really good episode, and then got ordered as a series. So it, I'd sort of been forgotten. I milked my heat off the black and white movie f- for enough time, and that sort of put me back in the a little limelight of a p- potential director. And then, yes, I jumped on Cherry 2000, <laughs> which did not do my career any good, but it has its following now as well. So how did you finally get back Miracle Mile, and, and what was the process of actually making this film now? It had been almost nine years well, between the time. I get Well, if I wrote it in 1979, from, from pitching it to 87 when we actually shot it was eight years, and to actually being in a theater was ten years. That essentially was my life in the 80s. I, I mean, I still wrote other things. I After the Hitchcock thing, I arrogantly turned down a big fat TV deal at Universal because I was a film snob and wrote a version of Jaws 4 that wasn't produced and had nothing to do with the one that came out, wrote on Gremlins too. I mean, millions of, you know, writing assignments, sort of getting attached to some other things, but my eye on the prize was always turning most things down in order to try to get Miracle Mile made. What was the casting like for this? It ended up being just... Everybody who's in it is somebody. That was what we were talking about yesterday. I mean, I literally had I had Denise Crosby, uh, you know, played Landa, uh, Kurt Fuller, who's you know in the Woody Allen Paris movie and is in everything. Uh, Jeanette Goldstein came down. She did a small part in America Mile, but you know she's Vasquez in Aliens and she's in Terminator Two and just you know all these actors. Danny De La Paz, who played Roger the uh, the transvestite, you know, played you know, gang. He was the lead in Boulevard Nights. You know, just everybody has a following almost. Um, I don't know. Uh, Lauren Lloyd, I was the casting director, did an amazing job. I heard a story about um, Jack Dance also almost being in the movie. Well, he, he auditioned, and I've been going through all the old audition tapes, and I haven't found him yet. I do remember, I think he was up for the maybe the cook or something. I, I, he was never cast, or but I, I do remember him coming in, and he had sobered up, and said, and I do remember that he said, "I no longer wake up in vacant uh, lots," and you know, <laughs> we wished him well. I, I, I love him. I'd, I'd try to find some spot for him. Maybe it was for the babbler. I'm not sure, but uh, I wish I could find the audition tape. I would put that in on the website that I'm going to be building for Miracle Mile. Michael T. Williamson is. Very, he's an unsung hero of mine, and he was wonderful in the film. What was he like to work he, with? He was great, and I just was commenting on the, uh, the director's commentaries in awe of how, of his death scene. Uh, that on every take, I think I was watching the dailies. He he drops at the moment of death 
a single tear from his eyelid down his face, which he re- does as well in Forrest Gump, but he died that way uh, in uh, my film first. And uh, he was great. He, you know, he, every once in a while he'd, he'd do a great ad lib, he'd add something to it. In the commentary, I, did, I had a critic who's written, actually written a whole book on Miracle Mile, uh, Walter Chow, who programs uh, for the Alamo Draft House. And, uh, you know, he pointed out, well, you know, I used a stereotype there, the guy who boosts car stereos. And I went, yeah, I have to cop to that. And I feel kind of bad about it. But I got, you know, had Michael T uh, to do it. And it was written actually as a surf punk. It was not written as a, uh, you know, so it was in storyboard, it is, you know, more of a surf punk. And, you know, but that I do have to live with making those choices. <laughs> and also Kelly Minter, who played his sister, uh, uh, came uh, on Friday as well. She did a great extended death scene, which I, I'm hoping to put some of the outtakes and things on the Blu-ray. How did the script change over this? I mean, there was such a long period of time. Did you have to go back in and rewrite it for the times? or uh, The biggest thing, and some people, and I was, it's funny, I haven't read the original drafts in years. I just started reading a little bit of it after I've done all these commentaries. I didn't want, I didn't want to be clouded by some of the origins when I'm really looking at the film that we made, which, you know, I love and I'm proud of that. And I don't really regret or look back at any other possibilities, but the original draft was an older guy. It was a trombone player in town for sort of a stage band contest. Uh, Maybe, maybe whiplash will bring back uh, jazz stage bands. (laughs) I don't know, but he was back in town, hadn't seen his ex in 13 years so that reconciliation story that's in you know still there in the grandparents was the main story it wasn't two people meet and fall in love it was you know they had he had left without a word because it i think caught uh his wife with his brother or something I can't, I can't even remember now but whatever it was when he gets the phone call he barges in on his ex after you know not a word from him in in over a decade and you deal with all that with the clock ticking some people think that was a stronger emotional thing and and think I d- diminished the movie a little bit from the power of the original script. They ever remake it, I would hope that they would go for that version. And, you know, I hope they don't remake it, but if they do, that would be a better way to go, in my opinion. The version that I read, I'm not sure, it didn't have a date on it, unfortunately, but he had been married twice. She had been married once and widowed, and she had a son in it. And Jeez. so it was interesting to see how it had changed. There is was a kid in one of those old versions, and when I was getting ready to make it for Warner Brothers, I remember we had to take the kid out. You can't have kids, and this is before the Twilight Zone incident. Kids in helicopters and seven weeks of night shooting, or the kid has to be older anyway. But it was my choice. Nobody made me drop that old reconciliation dynamic i it was my choice to do it and i decided to have somebody meet somebody on that day the the day they die essentially and try to make that work i did struggle both in writing versions and actually shooting openings to get it right and we reshot sort of them up a couple of scenes with them at the beginning a couple times what was Anthony Edwards like to work with on this one? He was a dream, and so was Mayor. Uh, if they weren't the kind, you know, the actors they were, and the uh, wonderful, you know, team players, it couldn't have been made. Uh, I was doing the commentary with 
Teo Vondesante, my DP, and Chris Horner, the production designer. And we were just going, how did we make this movie for 3.7 below the line? I mean, it's all at night. We got car stuff. We got stunts. We're blocking off streets. We got helicopters. And it is pretty amazing what we got on screen. And, you know, it's today. Even back then, the completion bond company said you need $20 million to make it. We always were shooting something inside, you know, an intense scene or something, and then had to run out to get a real dawn shot at, with the sky really having a shell of blue in the east. You know, today you do that CGI perhaps, but, you know, you had to have actors that were could stop doing this one intense scene and run out and do a whole other thing uh, without any ego or drama, <laughs> drama only on the in front of the camera, not behind it. Uh, let's just say on Cherry 2000, you know, uh, I, I didn't quite have that experience. And it, it was wonderful to have Tony and Mare on this and, and everybody aboard. There was not a single person on Miracle Mile that wasn't sort of part of the team and pulling for it. Yeah, it seems like such an ambitious project for you could consider this your third feature. Plus, you had the television work in here. I mean, this is a huge uh, amount of effort for uh, almost being out of the gate. Well, it was my second, third professional job. The Hitchcock thing was a half hour, and Cherry was a you know had twice the budget. I think it had six to eight million, but it was underprepared. I, I must say, I you know I jumped on a mo- I said, moving train uh, with a, already had a production designer. We were just sort of tried to get it on film, and I didn't write it. it you know, there's uh, there's a lot about it I really love now. The music and the character actors and the costumes, but. Uh, and it has its own following. Kino Lorber is also putting that out on on a Blu-ray this summer, uh, as well as Miracle Mile. Yeah, tell me about some of the stuff that's going on with the Blu-ray release. Yeah, company Kino Lorber, uh, Frank Tarzi there, is, I think came over from another little boutique place, and he's you know they're releasing a whole bunch of films, but they're putting you know you know it's low budget, but they're giving me enough to you know go in and retime the film with Teo and you know, do interviews and commentaries and extras and anything that doesn't fit on the Blu-ray. I'm going to try to build a website, put a lot of different extras on that. Um, Paul, Paul Chadwick, who's a graphic novelist now does concrete for dark horse was my storyboard artist and production illustrator. And I think he's going to get the website started. Yeah. There's a photo on, on Walter Chu's uh, book that yeah, that's a Paul. just, yeah. Yeah, okay. I was wondering where those were coming from. Well, Paul, I commissioned nine paintings from Paul, you know, in the early 80s. Those that I think that first one, the phone booth, was back there in 1980. And eventually there was nine paintings in the scene that you came to, um, you know, of uh, the phone booth, beating at the tar pits, jumping off the on-ramp, waking up Julie, the gas station blowing up, the heliport crossing the street, you know, I mean, uh, stuff at the at the end, going down in the tar pits is very close to what was in the production painting. And th- that helped people, you know, visualize the movie, reading the script. When it comes to the tar pit scene, was that always the way that it was going to end? Because I'd read that maybe that's a little different when it plays on television or something, as far as diamonds being shown. Oh, there, there is an, an alternate ending. It's never, I don't think it's ever played on television. I think I have the only print with that ending, which the Academy is going to keep for me. And we are going to put on the Blu-ray as an alternate ending. So you can watch, you know, just the white light fade away or you can the white light will 
uh, coalesce into two diamonds that spin away from you, and there's kind of a twinkling little sound. I must say, I was on the fence about that. Uh, Elisa Bello, who's an effects person, you know, got that done with some of her friends. And I really liked it, but some people thought it was not quite depressing, it romantic ending that it should be. And John Daly, the head of Hemdale, who gave me the money, you don't get a lot of studio heads who will do this, said, that's too upbeat. Let's cut it out. Let's, let's uh, rip their hearts out, crush their souls. You know, well, he made Platoon, you know, and it won the best picture for that. So it was like, no, let's let's go out that way. And and I'm glad we did. You mentioned Denise Crosby earlier. I always love her role as Landa. She is just awesome in it. We, we even brought a, a case down and a phone for her to play with. And, we, you know, we had nine of the cast assembled and we did like solo things and even did a little. I was just watching it just a minute ago, uh, the, the the dailies from it. Um it's weird to have dailies from Johnny's after 27 years, but that's what I have. Just a little, you know, we track down the counter and not everybody's there. The the babblers on you know, Howard Swain, who played Spongy the Babblers, uh, on Skype, and Danny DeLapaz is there, Alan Rosenberg, and Claude Earl Jones, Olan Jones, the waitress, and then Denise Landa, uh, just a little bit. And then we do, you know, just talking about the film interviews. It must be kind of strange going back and revisiting this after so much time. Well, we literally just got in there uh, on a fluke and uh, abuse of my visa card because uh, they usually charge a fortune. It's uh, Johnny's actually sitting there empty, and somebody uses it as a film set a couple times a year, and they charge a fortune. And it's left exactly the way we art directed it. Chris Horner and Richard Hoover, the art director, you know the song, the big hamburger sign isn't there. That never existed. We built that. The hamburgers are right outside my window or my girlfriend's window right here in Venice. We dipped five thousand light bulbs three times in blue paint. My DP Teo told me the other day, and they're still going twenty-seven years later. We you know put in the blue and the orange upholstered chairs. Everything is is as we left it, and it was pretty filthy in there, but not quite as filthy as I expected because we were just somebody's going to open the door for us for six hours and go in there and and we got in there and it was really amazing now how was the film received when it was initially released you know it played Sundance and it had a really nice reaction but it was that was the year Sundance became Sundance the year of sex lies and videotape so pretty much there's a lot of great movies there the big picture Heather's true love I can't remember all of them Charlie Mopic, but the tsunami of Sex Lies and Videotape just swept all that away. And it had been done for, you know, been in the can for a year, I think. And it was going to come out through TriStar, and, and that deal fell apart with Hemdale. So I can't complain about the release. It was released wide in New York and LA with a certain amount of TV ads. And it did good business uh, up against Roadhouse for two weeks. And then the third Raiders movie opened and buried it completely. So it's just, it had to sort of have its following slowly discovered on VHS and then DVD, both of which, you know, look like crap and are in the wrong format. So I'm surprised when anybody likes it. Yeah. I think the only widescreen version I've seen is some sort of like satellite broadcast from France or something. So yeah, it's, uh, very tough to find uh, a, a decent looking and I won't say nice looking version of it. 
so the, anyway, this it'll look a lot better. It, it you know it's way too bright and yeah, in a, not not the right form. So that's all fixed. That's you know, I mean, I would have liked to do 4K, you know, uh, UHD, but that's really expensive. And we, we, but we did a, an adic- very adequate job of really making it look the way it looks in a theater. If you've ever seen a print of it, it's a different experience. It's really uh, much darker. I mean, in, in mood, but also just, you know, in, in the timing. Yeah, it's got to be such a different film to experience with an audience as well. It, it is. Uh, it's uh, always shocks me how long people laugh. There's a lot of weird, humorous things in there. And people are still laughing, you know, up to the point of even the variety under the street there. there somebody that gets a chuckle and nobody back then or today thinks we're going to really do to the characters and to the audience what we do. This movies just don't do that, <laughs> but we do. Did people have problems with the darkness of the film? People that love the film, and it, it seems to be you know a sizable, growing cult out there. That's what they love about it. That it's you know it didn't do a Hollywood thing. Harry's a trombone player. He's not. You now he has a gun in his hand a few times. He doesn't. All he shoots is a record player in the gym. But you know he doesn't stop it he doesn't get all the president or a general and stop it he doesn't even get away so it's trying to tell you that there is no hope in this situation and i i could have made it probably made some a lot of money i would have taken a real-time concept with this phone call and done a chicken little that you did save the day but that's not what i wanted to make i wanted to make something that shook you up and made you think about the subject matter I was curious if the political atmosphere of the time had any sort of effect on the film or as far as the reaction to it or anything, because this came out right around the time. I mean, I'm trying to think of where it was in terms of perestroika and all this kind of stuff. Well, it's weird in that regard in that when I wrote in 1979, you know, we were still very Cold War. And, you know, I, I had horrible nightmares, you know, as we all did of, of my generation. You know, you were, you were school, you know, in school, you were, this was going to happen. Here's how you duck roll and cover and dust off the cans and for the radioactive dust and, and go back, get back out of the uh, bomb shelter and go fight the Ruskies. And this was inevitable. You know, so it was still pretty heated at that time. I like to tell audiences after they see it today and they go, oh, isn't that quaint in the 80s? And No, this is much more likely to happen tonight than back then. Back then we were on high alert. There was, you know, everybody running, uh, everything was, you know, split, you know, on hair trigger, split second, fail safe thing. Today, who knows who's running it? But we're still, we still have missiles pointed at each other. And nobody really paying attention. So it's more likely to happen to die. There was an instant when it was going to be made at um, Orion for a bigger budget, like $8 million or something, where the heads of Orion, the big guys, Arthur Krim or Eric Foster, I think Arthur Krim, the head of Mike Medavoy, was one of the SALT II negotiators. And he said, well, listen, we love this movie, but we can't start the war. You have to have the Russians start the war. And I go, well, we can't do that because then it's, it's a 10-minute movie, 20-minute movie. Um, <laughs> and how would they know? So, well, just you figure it out. It's a script thing. You'll, you'll do that. And I actually said, no, I can't make that movie because it's you – no, know, we have to be the ones who are shooting it out. Now, it could be because of a Russian incident. We don't get to know. That's that's part of it too. 
you don't know what happened to land and everybody who went off to Antarctica. You don't know why it started, who started it. You're just a trombone player in the middle of the night. In Los Angeles, and Los Angeles plays such a major role in the film. Teo and Chris and I were just, you know, admiring, too, the, the fact that we got these locations. Uh, Christy Frankenheimer, John Frankenheimer's daughter, and Ross Fanger were the location people. And it re- really was made at the right time to be able to really get the, the locations and do that and make it look the way we wanted it to look. We, we did point out, too, that even though the 80s hairdos sort of lock it into that decade, we we deliberately didn't use smoke and backlight and wet the streets down, which is really sort of the look of the times, the rock video, you know, Blade Runner light, what the Brits did to cinema at that time. And, and so, you know, it's sort of a clear look. You know, there's no, if we would have had, Teo said, yeah, if we would have had one night of rain and had a wet down, it would have ruined everything because it does play in real time. So we were very fortunate in that regard. Now, how long had you been in Los Angeles before you were writing on this? You know, I grew up in a little town in the state of Washington, but I came down in the 70s and went to college and uh, at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And, you know, FilmX was the big film festival back then. It was sort of the equivalent of Sundance. And I, I really wasn't into movies at all in high school. I was a jock, track jock. And so I sort of caught up quick going to FilmX and all the great revival houses around. And I do remember coming out of the El Rey Theater, which is on the Miracle Mile, some, you know, 20 greatest movies marathon or something. And it was like four in the morning and I was out there on that street when it was desolate. And I just thought, oh, that's, you know, not that it all came together right then, but that was a, you know, sort of a a moment that uh, informed the film eventually. I didn't cheat much. Uh, other than the gas station, which is downtown, everything is really where it should be geographically. And uh, we did talk about, I, I know it's in the script too, there is a camera store facade a little bit further down the Miracle Mile. It's beautiful, black enamel thing. And, it, you know, it's a little, you know, pretentious, but I wanted to have that camera, you know, they, actually where they say goodbye in the street in the chaos we did sort of an ersatz little neon version of that. But, you know, rather than actually sh- cheating that up the block to be where it is, I decided, no, I want, I want people to visit this, the site and go, oh, yeah, that could, that's where they went across the street here. And it really is fairly accurate. We, we built a few things, but it's not too much different than the truth. That gas station scene is so intense. And I really, I'm, I'm always happily surprised when Eddie Bunker shows up. Oh, good. I'm glad you, you got that. Yeah, we, Teo's wife, Michelle O'Hyan, who's, you know, a really great documentarian and hopefully will make a feature at some point, uh, had actually developed with Eddie uh, Little Boy Blue, one of his novels, to make it into a feature film. And Eddie was just wonderful and, of course, a brilliant, brilliant writer, the, the definitive fiction writer of the criminal world and incarceration. I will say, I think I said this on the commentary too it's one of the few scenes i mean really happy with it most everything the diner scene every you know ending uh, that one i'm a, i think the script was a little stronger because i i cast a couple actors because for their looks rather than their chops uh, more the guy than the woman and they're really you did in the script feel more connection between them. it was a little more extended it happens a little too quickly you know, and that was mainly just because you know 
didn't didn't have it on in performance on screen, but it still it works. You know, it's like you know if you're gonna you're blinded and you shoot off your gun, you're gonna blow yourself up. So don't shoot those missiles off. And I'm also always happy to see Brian Thompson when he shows up. Brian was there on Friday, and we have a odd connection too, in that we're from both from the same little uh, logging town of Longview, Washington, and his dad was my oceanography teacher, and I was going into oceanography. I almost came that close into going to Oregon State on a track scholarship to and study oceanography in the last second I switched to Occidental down the hall uh, Jim Wheat who him and his brother were filmmakers they've directed an Ewok movie and wrote Pitch Black and you know they they got me hooked on the on the film world uh we're still friends so it's just funny how those little twists uh, change your life. And I love that his character is just so straightforward when it comes to him being gay and just like, you got any problems? Nope. Done. Walter Chow pointed that out. He said, and I've had, I've had, uh, you know, both gay friends and, and, and a couple of uh, transvestites point out, thank you for having a character, Roger in the, the diner. Who's like, you know, he's, he's just there, you know, there's no mention. It's no big deal. He's just accepted there as one of the night regulars, and you, you know, there's no angst. And same thing with Brian's character. Hey, move on. It's, it's so what? And I guess that was, you know, now it's any young audience will go, yeah, of course. But back then it was still, you know, I guess a little unusual. So now you've recorded the audio commentary. You're working on the extras. What's next for you? <laughs> Going back to my fiction short stories and trying to get a collection out in somehow in tandem or at least on the horizon for when I'm out there with the Blu-rays having screenings and doing that. And then I got off the Hollywood train about six years ago and got a master's in creative writing and pretty much just that's what I've been doing. Watching the movie again and even, you know, getting together with the actors, I, I think I can get back and try to do one more or do something. But And I, I teach directing and, and screenwriting a bit, but I really did sort of just want to jump wholeheartedly into this brand new craft and and I really like the people in that world and, you know, it's a, it's a great world to be in. Hey, will you do me a favor and let me know the website when it goes up? Absolutely, and we'll link link this to that. Um, you know, it'll, it'll sort of grow slowly, and then hope. Uh, you know, the the release date I think for Miracle Mile I think is late July, and Cherry I think a week after something. So uh, as we lead up to that, uh, the Alamo Draft House, which has a lot of theaters, I know they're going to do something in Denver and maybe a few other other theaters uh, running both Miracle Mile and Cherry. Thanks to Olan Jones and Steve DeJarnett for taking the time to talk to us. If you want to hear more from Steve DeJarnett, you can check out our Strange Brew episode available over at our website, projection-booth.com. This week we're talking about Miracle Mile, which originally played in September of 88 in Montreal and Toronto film festivals before being released in May 
of 89, at least here in the United States. Now, it's not unusual for us to be concerned where when you kind of look at when a movie's release is coming out and sort of like what kind of things are playing at the world stage, as we saw just in the past few months, of course, in December with that whole uh, hacking thing and then the uh, the interview, which was going to be shelved and then released and then released in another way. So how does world events sort of play out, do you see, Mr. Mike, when it comes to Miracle Mile? I don't know how much older DeJarnet is than I am. Um, I think he's a couple years older, but and I think I'm probably the oldest one in the group. But when I was a kid... And I feel like an old man whenever I start off sentences like that. But when I was a kid, I was absolutely terrified of being destroyed by nuclear annihilation. I mean, that was kind of a thing that hung over my head all the time. It was pretty great. I went from that to dying of AIDS uh, pretty soon thereafter. But nuclear annihilation was definitely there. Did you get both of them together, nuclear AIDS? Things like um, I went out and I looked up the day that uh, the day after played. That was November twentieth, nineteen eighty three, and I was about eleven. Let's see, eighty three. Yeah, eleven years old, and watching that when I'm that age and just seeing how horrifying that movie was and then going on and seeing things like threads and other films that were available coming out and just always having that hanging over me. I mean, it was just terrifying. January 87, when Gorbachev's in office now, and it seems like we might have a cooling off of the Cold War or warming up, I guess, of the Cold War thawing out, as it were. That was terrific. And so, you know, Miracle Mile opens 89 early. And then, as you said, Dave, the Berlin Wall was falling the whole... Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall that was right around november of 89 and the wall coming down november 9th 89 so seeing this film in probably 92 i don't think it had the same impact for me as seeing this film in 89 and i really don't think it had the same impact had the film come out in say 83 i think this would have been absolutely devastating to come out in 1983 to have our main characters being killed with nuclear annihilation just would have torn the heart out of me as it is now still seeing it all these years later still does a great job of just being devastating but i think having that that ever-present nuclear annihilation threat that just, I mean, it permeated every every fiber of my being for so many years that it just, um, you know, it, it probably would have been more of a gut punch to see this at the time or had it been made during that particular era. So it was kind of weird that this was that tail end, this was that kiss goodbye to this threat that had been with us for so long. Well, getting on to that sort of similar idea, because I had never really thought about it this way, is um, how about Dr. Strangelove? Do you think Dr. Strangelove works, or do you think that it's you know uh, it's now a kitsch film as opposed to something that would have been much more serious during that era? I can't even imagine seeing Dr. Strangelove at the height of nuclear paranoia, you know, just... 
seeing something like that or um, seeing the day after was devastating. There have been other movies like uh, Special Report, which played out like a news broadcast during the nuclear strike or seeing the war game that would have just, you know, kind of torn my heart out. But yeah, I think it was just, there was probably different feelings throughout the entire threat that you got, like things like, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis probably was the the thing that scared the bejesus out of a lot of people, and probably Doctor Strange Love did you know take the piss out of that, which was probably a fantastic thing. Comparing that to something like Failsafe, which is like the serious version of of Doctor Strange Love, but then seventies, yes, of course, you still had that threat. You still had so many other things going on, but I think things were just really intensified when you had Emperor Reagan take over in uh, 1980 and just the way that he played cowboy so much and you just expected it, it felt like he was egging on the Russians a lot of times so it just it felt like it was more and more of a possibility or it could just be that I was growing up during that time and just felt like the the possibility was becoming more and more real as it went along. But th- it's a great question, Rob, as far as what must that have felt like to see Dr. Strangelove at the, the time when this was happening? Well, I mean, for me, I only know it as a film that I know through the context of the Cold War because I wrote about it in school. Like, I'm only a couple of years younger than you, but by the time 1989 rolled around, it was like, yeah, whatever, and uh, is you know, I mean, I was eleven, so I was, I knew about what was going on in the world, but it didn't, like, I didn't have that, gotta hide under the desk, duck and cover, you know, we're all gonna die, <laughs> feeling that you talk about. Always remember, the flash of an atomic bomb can come at any time, no matter where you may be, and this is very, very important. Sometimes the bomb might explode without any warning. And that means duck and cover fast, wherever you are. There's no time to look around or wait. Be like Bert. When there is a flash, duck and cover, and do it fast. Fortunately, we didn't do any duck and cover exercises. And when I was seeing films like that, seeing the duck and cover stuff, that was kitschy to me, even when I was seeing it, seeing something like the Atomic Cafe documentary. Because by that time, we knew that there was no hiding from a nuclear blast. I mean, there was, um, forgive me guys while I stand on my soapbox, but it's really making me mad these days when I see nuclear bombs going off in movies and it seems to be no big deal. Like seeing Godzilla last year, they set off a nuclear bomb off the coast of San Francisco and it's like, okay, yeah, it's 20 miles out or whatever. That's fine. I'm like, no, there's so many things that come along with a nuclear blast here. You guys just aren't really showing how terrible this is. You know, just one nuclear bomb can do so much damage. It just kind of makes me mad now when it seems to be like, oh, whatever. Yeah, we, we put out, you know, this nuke went off. No big deal. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's consequences to these things. So let, let's not have that happen, you know, so lightly. I mean, I think the last really good nuclear film that I saw was The Sum of All Fears, which I know a lot of people would just kind of poo-pooed that film. And that wasn't even like a quote-unquote real nuclear bomb that was more of a dirty nuclear bomb but that was like it kind of got me back to that feeling of this this shit is really super scary and um people just don't seem to 
take it as seriously these days. So I'm done. I'm I'm off my soapbox. Sure. Now. No, I absolutely 100% agree with you. Like what you mentioned, Godzilla. Um, every every time I see something like that, I I have to catalog it because I mean I wrote a book about it about these end of the world movies. And if there's a nuclear blast like that, especially in something like Godzilla. There's so many factors that they're not telling you, but it absolutely counts to me. That's an apocalypse. Um, I mean, if, if you set off a bomb like that, you've got residual effects for decades, for decades and decades and decades. And I like when I to me, the one that got me was Man of Steel, like all the damage that's done in that movie. I was like, holy crap. I can't believe that they made a Superman movie that's technically a post-apocalyptic movie. There's so much damage in that movie. It's going to take forever to for the Earth to ever get back to any sort of zero, back to where it started. And there was that terraforming thing. You remember that? That there were like two big giant machines that were terraforming our planet. That totally got me. I'm like, what the heck? They, they just ruined the planet forever. Even even though it didn't get the full effect, I was I was still appalled. I was like, Superman has to deal with an end of the world scenario now from here on out, and so does humanity. And that's crazy. That's the kind of thing that gets to me when I see stuff like that. I get, I just get, I get crazy. I'm like, how, how did they do? Why did they do that? They have to up the ante with these, these big movies to, you know, but after a while you just get numb. I'm like, when, when is it just a regular apocalypse? Why do they have to just keep going, keep going more special effects, more terraforming stuff, more nuclear bombs. I, I just can't, I, it's crazy. I don't know why they need to keep doing that with these movies. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, there was such a cheat in Jupiter Ascending. I just went to see that last week, and it's like, yeah, we just destroyed almost all of Chicago, but don't worry. It'll it'll be normal tomorrow morning. Yeah, and no one will remember. Right. Yeah, at least with the Avengers, they say, you know, the incidents in New York, and they really tried to keep it limited to, you know, a however many block radius. But yeah, they admit in those films, it's just like, and I know the next Avengers will really kind of speak to this of like, my God, we caused so much destruction in the city of New York. This is crazy. And, you know, now we have to take you know, we have to take actions. We can't just allow these super beings to be running out here and, and doing this stuff. But you're right. When it comes to Man of Steel, I mean, that was just ridiculous. And yeah, there's no coming back. Oh. It, they didn't uh, terraform the planet, but they came pretty darn close. Yeah. And yeah. what they ended up doing, yeah, we're done for. They did that in the third Transformers movie. I, I included, I, I count the third Transformers movie as an apocalyptic movie because of the, the amount of damage in that. Um, and then in the fourth one, there was like a sign that said, remember Chicago or whatever it was. And I was like, okay, well, there's a nice little nod. But then the fourth movie was pretty tame in comparison to the third one. This is a good segue into talking about your book. I want to talk about this whole idea. Um, David's book, World Gone Wild, The Survivor's Guide to Post-Apocalyptic Movies. I mean, Miracle Mile is not a post-apocalyptic film it's like right on the edge what are some of the other films that you kind of consider to be on the the edge of the apocalypse oh gosh there's so many i mean i include stuff if there's an apocalyptic event from which there's no return or repair i include it like you know i already mentioned man of steel and transformers 3 when you see an event on screen that's fictional i mean we're not talking about you know world war ii and the nuclear bomb in japan but if it's fictional and if you see something that's just completely catastrophic, I, I throw it in there with complete respect. It's not like, oh, well, that gets in just, you know, by the hair of its teeth or whatever. But I always bring up uh, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, because you, you sing the whole movie and you wait until the very end. And I call that the end happens at the end. 
it's where, you know, the, the whole world, you see it blown up right at the very end of the movie. And Judgment Day happens at the very, very end of the movie. But the fact that there's a Terminator in the movie from the future that's in a post-apocalyptic future, that tells me already that the end can't be stopped. Like, you know, the apocalypse can never be stopped. So, but there's all kinds of movies, man. I mean, there's, there's so many of them. I mean, look, look at the mist, the mist kind of, you, you get the feeling of the apocalypse throughout the whole movie, but you don't really understand it until the very end of the movie. And you're like, Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. We are at the end of the world. So yeah, there's, there's lots of different movies like that. Why did you write about the post-apocalypse? Why did you write world gone wild? You know, I'm a hardcore movie guy. I've always felt like I was the the movie guy, you know, or whatever. And I've always been a big fan of movie books, you know, uh, Roger Ebert's books, Leonard Maltin, so on and so forth. But there's always those books on if you go to a bookstore and you, you come across something like Destroy All Movies, The Complete Guide to Punks on Film. You see something like that. And I'm like, this is exactly what I've been wanting for a long time. But something that's geared towards a genre like the end of the world. And I remember there was a book called Apocalypse Movies by a guy named Kim Newman. I read that and it just it made me mad because he just lumped it all together and he didn't give each movie respect. It was like he would just mention something like 2019 after the fall of New York or Cafe Flesh or whatever. And I'd be like, I want to know more. I want to know more about those movies. I mean, he spent so much time talking about Planet of the Apes and Dr. Strangelove and the stuff that we you know, Miracle Mile was a big one. But it's just not enough. I, I've always wanted a complete guide to the end of the world genre. Not because I, I have a special crazy interest in this. I just, there's so much that we can talk about. I felt like once I started watching all these movies, I was learning a lot about humanity in a way through filmmakers, through the eyes of filmmakers and screenwriters. And I was like, there's a, there's a lot of common themes that we could discuss that are important. I feel like if we are faced with an apocalypse or a catastrophe that's just all encompassing, then I think there should be kind of a, a movie Bible on how characters were able to survive or weren't able to survive. And I sort of began to imagine like, if you could find a generator in a box of VHS movies that are like Miracle Mile or Cherry 2000 or 2019 or Mad Max, and if you could watch these movies after the world has ended, it'll help you a little bit. It'll be like your, uh, you know, your Book of Eli kind of a thing. It'll be your Bible. I thought that it was kind of a fun angle. Um, and there was a void in the market. I, I just, I could never understand why a book like this had never been written. And I was always afraid. I mean, it took me eight years to write it because I kind of didn't know what I was doing it for a while. Once I figured out what I was doing and, and I knew I was in a direction that would finally see an end, I, I was going to finish this thing. I was worried that someone would beat me to it, but. Thankfully, no one did. And I feel, I hope that this is like the, the survivor's guide to post-apocalyptic movies. Um, if you pick this book up at the end of the world, it might help you because there's a lot of spoilers in my book. I don't, I don't, I don't shy away from telling you what happens in the movie. And I tell you what themes are in the movie. How did this character survive? How did they, you know, there's warlords, there's marauders, there's sidekick dogs that have psychokinetic powers, like in the boy and his dog or, you know, telepathic dogs um you know it's there's so much that we could talk about and a lot of concurrent themes and important themes that will uh help us gain our footing once the end has come if you survive you know what i mean well it's kind of crazy that not only are you talking about nuclear annihilation but you are coming at it from all different angles i mean 
plants taking over the world yeah. and Day of the Triffid. Um, you're talking about zombies, right. you know, which there have been whole books just written about zombie right. films and just so many different ways that the world can end, so many different ways that we can approach the end of the world post-apocalypse. I mean, it's just the scope of the the book is just it's a little insane and, and and I'm amazed that you made it through to the other side just because it's so vast with the way that you approach this. I had no idea. I was totally naive. It was absolutely staggering once I realized the enormous pit that I kind of dug for myself. Um and I had to find my way out of it somehow, but once I figured out how to map it, how to just, you know, have sections and uh, what I, I created a subgenre index, it all made sense. Like I would have a zombie apocalypse category and I kind of shied away from most of the zombie movies because I'm not a big zombie fan. I had to make it very clear that it was a global thing or a very large area, like a big, big area, like in 28 Days Later. You know, it's not really clear that it's worldwide, but you definitely know that the UK has been affected. So I included that. Um, You have to talk about like millions of people being affected by this, not just a few thousand. It had to be millions of people. And once I was able to figure that out, it became easier and made my job easier. But towards the end of the thing, I, I realized that I'd kind of ignored the Rapture movies you know, the evangelical stuff. And I was like, holy crap, you know, there's a whole thing there, you know, and I I kind of didn't realize that at first. Uh, But once I started to like even look at those, you know, the Christian rapture stuff, I was like, dang, this is great. You know, this is totally new for me. It was definitely a goofy way to go. There's a lot of goofy rapture movies out there. But I'm so glad I included that because it's absolutely 100% valid from a cinematic perspective. You know, I, I even included some adult films that were, I felt like we've already mentioned Cafe Flesh, very essential. I mean, you look at that movie and how can you not talk about the Cafe Flesh movies in a book like this? You have to. It's so essential. But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of dug myself into a hole with uh, the anime titles because there's so much of it. And I, I watched everything by myself. Nobody helped me with this book. It was just, it was such a lot of work. Well, just tracking down the films. And then not only are you looking at films from one country, but you know, you mentioned the anime, but then I'm seeing things like end of August at the ozone hotel or the, the, uh, Polish film, what is that, OBB? Yes. I mean, just so many. You're, you're going around the world with this. I saw short subjects in here, yes. so you're not even limiting yourself to just feature films. I mean, was did you do, uh, there's like TV movies in here, so I mean, God, it's just, uh, it's so impressive. that. And to be honest, I mean, once the apocalypse happens, if people have a copy of this book, they can also use it as a weapon. It's just so thick and so heavy. You could really do some damage on somebody with this. Yeah, just wear it around your neck, you know, and you'll, you'll be fine. You'll block some bullets. You never know. Yeah, I would like to have one on my chest and one on my back, I think. Yeah, man, it was a ton of work. But I'm so glad I did it, you know, and still nobody's talking about doing another one. So I guess hopefully this will speak for, you know, years to come. I mean, I'm already working on another edition. So because uh, as soon as I released it, there was a whole glut of other ones that came out. And of course, I'm trying to keep up. It's just never ending. The book is never going to be done. 
No, no. I mean, I just saw the, um, what was it, San Andreas the other day, and uh, the trailer for that, and it's like, oh, geez. But then, of course, I keep thinking to myself, like, well, if Superman comes along and just spins the Earth back, we'll be okay with that. I don't think they want to do that, right? That would be great. He would just be spinning forever, make everything fine, you know, forever. Yeah. We talked about how much stuff you included in the book. What wasn't included? Where did you draw the line? You talked about zombies, limited zombie plagues. What other things did you say, no, this does not count? There were a handful. It really bummed me out when I would be like 10 episodes into an anime show. And I'm like, where is the apocalyptic stuff? And eventually I would just give up. I'm like, okay, that doesn't work. Um, So I would, you know, just take that away. Some horror movies, like maybe The Omen, you know, where where you're talking about the Antichrist, where it's like, when is the rapture going to happen? Is that going to happen? I said no to a lot of that kind of thing. I watched Battlestar Galactica, the new the new series, because they they were, you know, they were the last of that race. You know, they weren't really humans or I could never really figure it out. They were like headed to Earth, Um, but they were the last of their race. And so I'm like, well, ah, that's really weird. You know, I, I wasn't sure how to approach that from a, an apocalyptic on earth perspective. So I, I said no to that. But yeah, there were a lot of little things like that, that I came across that I just had to make a judgment call. I would watch some things and I'd be like, no, it's not enough. Like um, a good example is uh, Armageddon and Deep Impact. You know, I included Deep Impact because you the, the the one of the asteroids hits the Earth and it's like it wipes out a huge area, like a massive area. And you, you find out that like millions of people die. And with Armageddon, they stop it and you get like little bits and pieces of, of asteroids coming on, raining on New York or whatever. And, you know, maybe like a couple of guys get killed in a taxi or whatever, but that's it. I included Deep Impact, but I didn't include Armageddon because it just it wasn't enough. Or like something like Volcano or Dante's Peak where you have something like that, you know, or Earthquake, that Charlton Heston movie. You know, the, the disaster movies, I, I was kind of wary. I'm like, I don't know how to approach that. I would just... I would wait for some something massively catastrophic to happen. If it never happened, then I didn't include it. It was that that's basically what it came down to. So I guess San Andreas maybe won't count, but something like 2012 will. 2012 definitely. Oh my gosh. Um but San Andreas, I saw the trailer and from what I saw from that trailer, the way that you see the valley break up like that, I don't know, man. That looks pretty good. I, I'm ready for that. I, I love that stuff. I, I love seeing that destruction on screen. Anything by Roland uh, Emmerich is good to go. What about the new um, Mad Max? Of course. Well, yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's 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 what built this book. <laughs> Mad Max is bread and butter. I just wish that Mel Gibson was in it. Why are we so obsessed with the post-apocalypse? I mean, even on this show, where we don't particularly say we're going to cover post-apocalyptic shows, I mean, just flipping through your book, I'm like, oh, well, there's Trancers. Oh, well, there's Surf Nazis Must Die. I mean, there's so many things that we've covered where we haven't even really put them into that post-apocalyptic category. But we have definitely have talked about these films before. So why, and I'm not saying why are we, as in Rob and myself, but why are we as a culture, as a film-going audience, so obsessed with the post-apocalypse? Well, it depends on like what, where, what your background is. Christian, Muslim, I don't know, whatever. Wherever you're from, whatever you've been taught, raised. I was raised in church, and so I read the Bible, still do. And there's always like an end date. There's an expiration date on us. It doesn't matter. I mean, we're all going to die 
eventually. I mean, sooner, later, whenever. So, I mean, our the last day of our lives is essentially the apocalypse in a way. Knowing that, it's kind of fun, I think, to play act, play pretend, escaping that somehow and running away from it. I mean, that's what zombies are all about, right? You're running away from the zombies because they're chasing you. And now we're running away from viruses. I mean, that's the big thing in, in apocalyptic movies now. That's the new theme is viruses. Everybody's afraid of catching, you know, the super flu or whatever it is, the Ebola or, you know, contagion. The times change a little bit, but I think the end date, the expiration date is always there. And to be able, I mean, that's why people love these video games, right? You know, the Resident Evil games, the Rage and all Fallout and all these things that people play. I mean, we love it. We love to kind of just pretend that we can actually make it somehow. Surviving on tin cans, you know, uh, canned goods and uh, holding up in a Costco warehouse or something with your buddies. There's something to it. It's primal. I mean, we want to protect our family from the marauders, the villains. And if we can be a hero in that environment, great. But sometimes there's really no good guys or bad guys. I mean, it's just a bunch of guys who are hungry. And that's what this is about. I mean, this is that's what these movies are like. Um, and if we can kind of put ourselves in leather leather boots and uh, have a sawed-off shotgun and, you know, a cool car, then we're good to go. Uh, I think that's why we like these movies, and that's why they're always going to be made. I mean, yeah, that Am I right or what? Yeah, very much so. And, you know, it's probably hard after you've, you know, watched hundreds and hundreds of movies to uh, maybe come up with uh, your top five personal uh, post-apocalyptic films. I cheat a little bit when I do this. Um, The Mad Max trilogy, to me, that's one. Like, that's probably number one. But I also put together Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. People hate Escape from L.A., but I don't. I love it. Um, I could I could go on and on and tell you why I love it, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Escape from New York, Escape from L.A., that's number two. Um, and then I'd probably do Terminator 1 and 2 together up there. And then I get, I get a little weird. I get, there's an Italian movie called After the Fall of New York or 2019 After the Fall of New York. I love that movie because it blends all those movies that I just mentioned. It's got Escape from New York, The Terminator, and the Mad Max movies all together as one. Um, it's one of those crazy Italian hybrid movies, but I love it. To me, that's if you're going to watch one movie out of all the ones I just said, probably that one has flavors of all the other ones. And then at the end, number five, and this is really crazy. People are going to think I'm crazy. Waterworld and The Postman together. <laughs> uh, I love The Postman. And I, I just I can't describe my love for that movie even though people absolutely hate it but as a post-apocalyptic movie it's got so many good ideas and so does Waterworld. Waterworld's awesome. Waterworld is essentially the road warrior on water um, but those movies all those movies I just mentioned that is the end of the world genre kind of done fun. Those are the fun apocalyptic movies. I mean if we're going to talk about like realistic stuff you already mentioned of the war game threads Miracle Mile, you know, these are the movies that you watch them and you don't want to watch a movie for days later. You know, The Road. They're, those are like the movies you don't want to watch if you want to pretend because they're so grisly and sad and just heartbreaking. But yeah, those those are the ones that I, I would recommend to people if you want to have a good time in a fantasy kind of world. Well, I had to go to Zombies. So uh, Dawn of the Dead, uh, the original uh, George Romero. Uh, Twelve Monkeys, I think that sort of that you know, that would be sort of the uh, viruses theme you were talking about there. 
uh, Miracle Mile, I'll put that on there. I have to say that I wasn't uh, going as broad on the category in terms of uh, things that I could have put in there, but I, I'd throw Miracle Mile on this pile. And then Peter Watkins, that was the name we were thinking of earlier, Mike. Yeah, who uh, Punishment Park, if you're interested, one of our past episodes. But the war game, and the war game's interesting because it's supposed to be a reenactment, well, I guess it's not a reenactment, uh, an enactment of what would happen if there was a nuclear attack on the UK. And it was, I guess, so disturbing that I think the BBC decided not to air it when it was made in 1965. So it's uh, it's quite good. I think it's an hour, black and white uh, really gives you a sense of what it would be like in the chaos as things are happening. And he pairs it against, I believe it's the manual that the British government says, this is how things would happen. And he goes, okay, well, this is what the government says would happen. But this is probably actually what would really happen. And then um, Planet of the Apes. Mine are the Road Warrior. I only like the Road Warrior, not... I'm not a big Mad Max fan, and I really don't like Thunderdome. I don't know what it is, but I don't know if it's the mullet or what it is. Yeah, that's blasphemy outright. Isn't that master blasphemy? Uh, Yes, it is master blasphemy, definitely. I guess it's just the thing that I don't like about Beyond Thunderdome, that the gyro pilot doesn't seem to recognize him and vice versa. And I never understood that. It's just a little thing. I he's not the same character. It's a different character. Um, but whatever. That's that's just a little minor thing. That, that doesn't bother me. I, I kind of like it. But to me, that's the best of the three. Is Thunderdome. I will watch the Road Warrior any day of the week. But you have to twist my arm to see Thunderdome again. But number two for me, Cafe Flesh. We've mentioned that a couple times, and I guess we're we're just gonna have to. Uh, cover that on the show one of these days we've talked about night dreams now and we're going to be talking about dr caligari in a couple months here but we haven't talked about cafe flesh officially and i I guess we really need to do that number three for me 12 monkeys right there with you rob as far as that being the really nice i mean i loved legetti when i was uh in film school and then as i'm watching 12 monkeys i'm just like god this seems so familiar why is that and then i finally realized why and i just loved it even more because of that um one that you guys haven't mentioned yet the omega man uh, falls for my number four my favorite interpretation of i am legend i know that the last man on earth with vincent price was more faithful to the book but but I really love me some albino vampires and Charlton Heston kicking ass. And speaking of Charlton Heston, number five for me is my the original Planet of the Apes. And if I had to do honorable mentions just to cheat, I would say uh, Le Dernier Combat and Night of the Comet. Nice. Yeah, Le Dernier Combat's fantastic. I love that movie. All right, so let's go ahead, take another break, and play a preview for next week's show. <laughs> At 6.12, precisely. Zach Hobson died. And the earth fell silent. Zach Hobson, July 5th. One, there has been a malfunction in Project Flashlight with devastating results. Two, it seems I am the only person left on it. Parent? Oh... Oscillations in the sun continue to increase at the same rate. The sun must collapse in a few days. If there's anybody out there at all, could you please contact me at home? Two Thurston Avenue, Somebody 
not been condemned to live. realized what was happening. We trusted them. They were on our side. <laughs> the white boss went with the rest of them. There's just you and me now. are a waste of time. You reckon the grid is balanced? Okay. We take the scene down, the grid curves. A Jeff Murphy film, The Quiet Earth. The end of the world is just the beginning. That's right. Speaking of the post-apocalypse, we'll be talking about The Quiet Earth next week, a 1985 film from New Zealand, and we'll be joined by our old friend, Mr. Keith Gordon, on that one. But before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, David J. Moore, for coming on the show. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your book, sir? Well, I'm on Facebook. I'm real easy to find, David J. Moore. I'm also uh, working on a website, uh, videovalhalla.com. Um, it's actually, it's up. I think it's up. Um, and I'm, but I'm still working on it. So, uh, but yeah, Facebook is the best place right now, but video Valhalla is coming soon. We will definitely be, uh, posting a link over there when, whenever you want us to, so we can uh, point people over there. Thank you again, David. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, if folks want to kind of return the favor, you can just go on over to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you happen to download the show at. Just uh, give us a review, some stars. really helps us kind of get the word out there. And, uh, yeah, it'll just uh, make you feel a little bit better about yourself for enjoying the free entertainment that you just partook in. And, uh Thanks a lot. I'd like to feed the children. Find a cure for disease. Rebuild cities. And plant a lot of trees. I'd like to help the sick Build factories Give money to students Hospitals and galleries But I'm afraid of the Russians I 
can't sleep at night. So afraid of the Russians. Afraid we've got to fight. I'd like to go to space. Clean up rivers and lakes. Put everyone to work. Whatever it takes. But I'm afraid of the Russians. I can't sleep at night. So afraid of the Russians. Afraid we've got to fight. They've got ships at sea. They've got missiles in the air. Tanks on the border of Europe. And spies everywhere. I'd like to feed the children, find a cure for disease. Rebuild the cities. Plant a lot of trees. But I'm afraid of the Russians. I can't sleep at night. So afraid of the Russians. Think we've got to fight. They've got ships at sea. They've got pistols in the air. On the border of Europe, and spies everywhere. Spies everywhere. Spies everywhere. Spies Ничего не хочу. Что ты знаешь? Сегодня в 4 
rock every move is starring you and the world will turn to flowing pink papers too Every movement starring you 
at ground zero Every move and star is you And the world will turn to slow and big paper too Wackadoo, wackadoo, wackadoo Party at ground zero Every move and star is you And the world will turn to slow and big paper too Party at ground zero Every move and star is you this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.